hello and welcome to another interview with In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Simon Brown, a PhD candidate in history at UC Berkeley, and I had the chance to talk with Kay Helan Gaston, a lecturer in American religious history and ethics at Harvard Divinity School. Her recent book, Imagining Judeo-Christian America, Religion, Secularism, and the Redefinition of Democracy, out from UChicago Press in 2019, traces how columnists, theologians, political theorists, and politicians in the United States began to describe their democracy as uniquely Judeo-Christian over the course of the 20th century, why this imagined lineage resonated with so many, and how it has always courted controversy down to today. We discuss the fraught meaning of religious authenticity, intellectual histories and popular politics, and international nationalism in the present day. So as, as you lay out through the book, the idea that the United States was, is, and ought to be a Judeo-Christian nation becomes more and more prominent throughout the 20th century, starting about the 1930s, and then increasing, and then changing. Yes. But before we get to the U.S., I want to ask about how people came to understand Judeo-Christian as a meaningful term in the first place. So at the beginning of your story, you discuss the importance of the supersessionist theology and biblical scholarship, particularly in the 19th century. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this supersessionist framework and how people came to understand that hyphen between the Judeo and the Christian in the first place. Okay, well, um, you know, I think the, the key here is just to recognize that um, around the time that sort of theorists of the world religions frame were doing their work, you you have them building off of sort of two different streams for thinking about uh, the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. And one sort of comes out of Hegel and has a certain kind of, you know, kind of characteristic set of supersessionist um, views built into it. So the idea then is that um, Judaism is the sort of the root of the flourishing Christian branch so that whatever is relevant about Judaism in the present has really been taken over and perfected in Christianity. Um, and so a good example of this would be, you know, something from the same time period would be the view of someone like James Freeman Clark of the great religions of the world. Like he's willing to say that there's some truth in um, various of these um, traditions, but he understands Christianity as the apex or the fulfillment of that promise. Um, and so, you know, a big part of it, of course, has to do with the debates that are ongoing about this moment of like, at, at what point does Christianity exist, right? At what mm -hmm. point does Christianity become its own separate tradition? And, you know, this is, the, you know, the, the essence of the question of the, you know, is Jesus a Jew? But then the other piece of this puzzle is that there's another kind of framework for thinking about the Judeo-Christian, which is coming out of Matthew Arnold, right, which is this sort of notion that there's a sort of balance between the Hellenic and the Hebraic, and mm -hmm. that the two are sort of vying, we're not vying, but that they have to be in the right relation to one another. Um, so that, you know, for Arnold, he's arguing, he's making an argument about the need to increase the Hellenic component. Um, in some respects, I think that um, someone like, and you know, Reinhold Niebuhr was much more kind of in tune um, with that particular way of thinking about the question. I mean, he had a sense that one of his goals was to increase the Hebraic content of the Christian tradition, mm -hmm. so sort of balancing of a scale, right? So, um, but those are really um, sort of the two kind of conceptual streams that this 
terminology is coming out of as mm-hmm. it moves out of the 19th century and into the 20th. No, so so I was interested with this the supersessionist framework because uh, even at the end of the story, uh, you you mention briefly the kind of some debates in the 1970s and 1980s, particularly among conservative thinkers, um, about whether or not actually it should be the Christian Judeo tradition um, and they should reframe it. So, I mean, do you see a sense that there are still these questions about the relationship between Judaism and Christianity that persist throughout the period, even when many people begin to agree that Judeo-Christian is the term they want to use? Um, yeah, no, I think you're right on. I mean, I'm so glad you picked up the Christian Judeo, like reordering. It's such a fascinating thing because I'm not even sure how conscious some of those folks were of the longer history of the term or, you know, if they were conscious of it, I don't think they cared. But the sort of intuitive understanding that this is, you know, that the place of primacy is a significant thing. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think the part of the way that I try to deal with the persistence of supersessionist meanings is to recognize that if we look at the way the term gets used by two different camps, which essentially I call Judeo-Christian exceptionalists and Judeo-Christian pluralists, we see that from the very sort of earliest uses of the term Judeo-Christian, there's what I sort of describe as a kind of slippage that tends to happen among the exceptionalists, where they use the term Judeo-Christian in one sentence, and then maybe two or three sentences later, they talk about a Christian America. Right? And you see this really strongly, actually, in a much more kind of almost comic and confused fashion in the invocation of Trump about, you know, we're saying Merry Christmas again a couple of years ago, right? He, I mean, first of all, the whole we're saying Merry Christmas again, he's like labeling that as the sort of reassertion of Judeo-Christian values, which has got its own problematics, right? But then he, um, later in the, a few sentences down, like slips into the Christian context for talking, right? And so it turns out that that slip um, is actually something that you see as a pattern Um, from the very sort of earliest moments that Judeo-Christian terminology starts to become kind of a mainstream phenomenon, which, as you rightly said, the 30s and 40s um, really sort of becomes so in earnest in the context of the Second World War, but is very much an issue um, in certain circles, a conversation point in certain circles from pretty much the early 1930s onward. Right. And I want to get to that, that kind of increasing popularity popularity in the 1930s, but to get back to something you mentioned earlier about uh, Matthew Arnold and the the, the Hellenic tradition as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the, I believe it's in the 19-teens and 1920s that you also get uh, kind of increasing use of uh, the term Western civilization That's and right. a, a kind of curriculum at, at colleges and other educational institutions around Western civilization. So can you just talk a little bit about how Judeo-Christian relates to Western civilization as a, as a way of imagining the past? Um, is it often allied together or do these have quite different implications in this period? Um, I mean, I think you see some people who understand them as one and the same and you see others who are trying to do more the sort of Arnoldian. I mean, some people are saying a Western civilization is a Christian or Judeo-Christian enterprise in that sort of Hegelian sense, you know, or they're saying it's a Hellenic and Hebraic, right? And so sometimes you see them actually breaking out the Hellenic and the Hebraic, partially in an effort to, you know, deal with the fact that, um, that if you rely solely on 
the Hellenic or the Hebraic, you've actually got a real problem that relates to what is in the 20s and teens starting to be sort of a kind of cultural gifts approach that these new immigrant groups are taking to their own contributions, both to democracy and to the sort of Western civilizational complex, right? And so um, if you talk only about the Hebraic, this is a point that John McGreevy makes in his book, then, you know, you're leaving, I mean, you're potentially like laying out a sort of vision that would include, you know, left-leaning or liberal Protestants and Jews, but that would be, you know, not as welcoming to Catholics, right? And so, you know, the, the, if, you, if it's a textbook that's being used in a Catholic context, you almost always see it breaking the Hellenic and the Hebraic and saying, and mentioning both in tandem, right? Um, but if it's um, a textbook that is not as eager to, you know, kind of point that particular problematic out and draw attention to it, then sometimes they do use the term Judeo-Christian in that context. Um, and, you know, I think in that sense, I mean, you know, a lot has been written about the kind of construction of a notion of Western civilization that is really beyond the scope of my book. But, you know, I do try as best I can to trace some of those early uses of language like this, because, of course, the stakes become very great as you head into a period where totalitarianism is on the rise around the globe, where, um, where, Questions about, you know, what will be the fate of civilization, of Western, this Western civilizational complex that they're positing, right? Where, where will leadership lie in that complex, right? That becomes a very pressing one and one that, of course, has, you know, a real impact on the fate of the United States in the world in the sort of, you know, immediate years of World War II and afterward. Right. So that, and I'm glad you, you bring up um, the connection with totalitarianism because this was something I was, um, I was, thinking about as well. Um, moving into the 1930s, when you talk about the kind of really flourishing of the, this Judeo-Christian discourse, um, you kind of pinpoint one article in the New York Times by the Anglo-American writer P.W. Wilson in 1931 as a sort of turning point or a representation of how people would come to use Judeo-Christianity and the Judeo-Christian discourse beginning in the 1930s and how that would in many ways define how people would use it for the subsequent decades. Could you talk a little bit about what that way of using the term looks like and why someone like Wilson is using it in a, in a new and resonant way? Okay. Yes. Um, I think the biggest thing um, to sort of take away from that particular section about PW Wilson is that, um, that the thing that I've tried most to trace in this book is uses of the term Judeo-Christian as a way to describe American democracy and national identity, right? And that does not really begin in earnest until you have the sort of totalitarian threat to democracy, right? In the context of the thirties, it's not until you're actually debating what democracy is in the context of a world where totalitarianism is on the rise, right? And so, Really what it is is that we're looking at a period where democracy is being theorized in conjunction with the New Deal, right, in the wake of a, a you know, basically in the attempt to respond to a, a global economic depression that has led to the Great Depression in this country, right? And the thing that is fascinating to me about um, the story, and I try to bring it out here, is that someone like a Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, just happens to publish this powerful book, Moral Man and Immoral Society, in 1932. And then he just happens to publish a kind of, you know, 
theory of democracy in the children of light and the children of darkness in 1944. I mean, in other words, there's a kind of almost incredible overlap between like his career and these really important kind of moments in the process of really theorizing democracy. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of fascinating to me um, to recognize that, that really there isn't before PW Wilson, what I would call a kind of modern use of the term Judeo Christian that talks about it over and against totalitarianism, right? It's there. I haven't been able to find a use of the, of the Judeo Christian concept that does that. And of course the reason is because of the fact that the, you know, historical circumstances on the ground are changing. Mm-hmm. Right? right. And so that, that context is dependent on global events. Right. And so you see the moment where this discourse suddenly goes from being something that has been about culture to being something that is actually much more about politics. Right. And I think in that section, you talk about how this discourse was so closely connected to anti-totalitarianism. You also describe how this could be extended as a sort of critique of link of oncoming secularism and, and the new deal state, these, these tendencies that are seen as maybe less extreme than European totalitarianism, but that are kind of creeping versions of it. Um, if we, if we reorient our understanding of Judeo Christianity as a response in part to those developments, um, does it take on a, a different quality? Does it look like it's the exclusionary or the pluralist, as you describe it, does it look like one of those is more predominant in this period or, um, are there still both branches, uh, in the 1930s and into the 1940s? Well, part of it is that the group that I call exceptionalists, like they tend to be essentially Christian front and, you know, uh, and people who are not nearly as extreme as the Christian front, but they, they tend to be folks who are on the exceptionalist side of this conversation tend to be using Christian language purely still in the thirties. Right. Because there's actually a lag here. Right. Um, in the ways that the term gets used, that helps to explain why we're currently living in a moment where the term Judeo Christian is sort of coming to full flower for certain groups of very conservative people in this country. Mm-hmm. Right. In ways that it came to full flower for other groups of people in like the you know, 50s and early 60s. Right. And, and that's partially because there was a lag in the discourse at the very sort of point of inception. Right. So in other words, if you think of it this way, there's a terminological battle going on in the 30s and 40s over whether the term Judeo-Christian is going to become prominent. And you have folks who really would like to stick with the idea that this is a Christian America. Right. Because for a long, long time, for a lot of people, the the primary way that the the, the nation was often described in the 19th century and coming out of the 19th century was as a Protestant nation. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for like Coughlinites or folks who see themselves as part of a Christian front criticizing the New Deal, you know, um, the idea might be then that this is going to be a Christian project, right? And so part of what you're seeing throughout the 30s and into the early 40s is a sort of tug of war of the question of whether there's going to get any tr- be any traction for the idea of a Christian America in that moment or whether it's going to be a Judeo-Christian paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the U.S. decides, I mean, becomes involved in the wars in the ways that it does and because that war takes the shape that it does, right, it, this country comes out of the World War II era Judeo-Christian nation. I mean, there are still people who call it a Christian nation purely, but with the rise of, you know, a film like Gentleman's Agreement. I mean, you look at, and it's not a moment where the term Christian is, is easily read as not potentially having some anti-Semitic implication if you, if you, you know, wed it to democracy or national identity. 
Right. And so one of the particular developments in this period and subsequently and kind of extending throughout almost the entire story you tell is the particular concern among people who are inclined to use Judeo-Christian discourse as a particular concern with education and with the secularization of schools and the yeah. sense that prayer and religion is being cast out of them and that the state is less inclined to fund and support parochial schools, usually in, in the case of Catholics. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it is that the school becomes such a location for these clashes over um, uh, uh, these clashes in which Judeo-Christian discourse is so readily used. Um, is this partially because people understood Judeo-Christian values to be transmitted through schools, or uh, do they imagine that they're transmitted largely through other kinds of institutions? Well, I think some of it has to do with, you know, really something that underpins most books that you'll read. I mean, they're excellent books, like Andrew Hartman's book on the culture wars, for instance. Any book that you read on the culture wars um, will tell you that, um, you know, that it is precisely spaces where either people are a captive audience, you know, where there's, um, or, or where there's socialization of the young involved, right? That you see the most heated battles around the sort of who are we question, mm -hmm. right? And this is one of the reasons why a lot of the books that have to do with categories of religion questions will be about the military, um, incarceration, right? Schools, right? It's an unfortunate, um, I mean, for our schools, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's it sort of fashions them as potential prisons. But I think that, um, you know, for those who are critics of, say, the way that we teach religion in the public schools, that's not always too far off the mark. Um, so, you know, it, it becomes very clear pretty early on. And I think you see this not just in the sort of prayer and Bible reading cases in the 60s, but much earlier, of course, in the Everson, McCollum, Zorak decisions of the late 40s and early 50s, um, a tremendous amount of concern about the place of religion in, in American public life and the relationship between religion and democracy. So the question of how we ought to be educating people around, you know, this question becomes a very heated one. And the question of funding, you know, becomes a very, very heated one. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in some ways, like one of the most interesting to me, one of the most interesting ways to think about some of those skirmishes before what you see is the, you know, what becomes the sort of full blown opening of the culture wars is the fact that since the seventies and eighties, you know, so much of our discussion has revolved around basically the autonomy of the family in relation to the child versus the autonomy of the school. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where some of the family values language that has been employed since the seventies, like gets, a lot of its power, because it's not just about a particular sort of critique of the LGBTQ community or the question of like, the, you know, that Carter and others are dealing with in the White House Conference on Children and Families around who constitutes a family. It also points back in the direction of this question about the schools. Does the state control the child, right? Or does do the parents control the child? And if the state can't be responsive to the needs of the child or the conditions on the ground in the local area, then what then, then what is the state actually doing, right? And so you see both the growth of communitarian um, views about how we ought to, you know, essentially the public schools should be teaching religion in the vein that is best represented in communal areas, right? So that sort of wanting to go by a kind of more regional approach to sort of how we think about, you know, what ought to be taught in the schools um, to um, the idea that, 
um, that the state is really actively trying to make secularism the religion of America through the public schools, which is an argument that you see really drawn out strongly by someone like Ronald Reagan in conjunction with Judeo-Christian terminology, but is actually a much older argument. It's you know right there in these debates, right around church-state questions, um, really starting in the '40s and '50s and on, onward. Yeah, and I, I was thinking about that connection with the with, with the family the turn to family values in the 1970s and the 1980s which you describe as becoming so important in the way people begin to use judeo-christian discourse particularly among conservatives i mean one interpretation of that as, as a non-expert myself i might read that and say that that is proof of conservatives who are inclined to use this discourse kind of seeding the ground of the school and saying that it's really the family where these kinds of values are instilled. I mean, is that a fair interpretation or is is it not so much that the school recedes in importance as the family becomes more important to conservatives in this maintenance of Judeo-Christian values? Or, or is it seen as a kind of an alternative to schools which are maybe irredeemably secular? Oh yeah, I mean, I think so. And some of that, of course, is like the movement toward private Christian schools and the homeschooling movement, you know, which... I mean, the, you know, segregation academies, I mean, the, I mean, there's definitely, you know, there's definitely a fair amount of movement in the direction of, um, you know, saying, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't be spending so much of our energy trying to wage war over this question of the content of school teaching, and we should go ahead and, um, you know, put our sights elsewhere. Um, but no, I mean, I think, I think that, that, that the two are not like incompatible. I mean, it's mm-hmm. entirely possible to kind of put more of an emphasis on family, family values, but to see that as, see the schools as one prong in that sort of larger project. And so I think to, to return then to, um, to the post-war period, the post-World War II period, um, when according to your book, we see a a real flourishing, it might even be the heyday of the Judeo-Christian discourse and just how frequently it was evoked and by so many people. Um, When you talk about this period from between about 1945 and 1965, as a period when the Judeo-Christian discourse received enough use and enough of a consensus that it could kind of elide three different implications. So on the one hand, it would seem to be a historical claim about the nation's past. It's a descriptive claim about its present. And it's a normative claim about what it ought to be in the future. So I was just kind of curious about the relationship between some of these aspects. And I'm sure this differs from author to author, but you might be able to kind of illuminate that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, I think you're great. It's great to sort of see it, you know, see those different dimensions. I mean, as with the case of the exceptionalist pluralist distinction that I make, um, you know, there are many, many folks who are kind of falling somewhere like, you know, between these poles or, you know, the, the, the case, the particular cases themselves are somewhat more complex than the kind of ideal type that they um, are um, represented by. Um, but I do think if you think along those lines, right, about the sort of historical, the sort of um, descriptive in the present or the sort of normative, um, then part of what that does is it helps you look at each individual case and see, oh, I see how the normative dimension here is related to this account of the past, right? And I think in particular, it's important to remember that um, there's almost a, a constant 
um, use among exceptionalists of the term values in part because they are really strongly persuaded by the idea that, you know, of a kind of legal um, framers intent kind of model, right? Where um, these values come from the founders or these value, you know, values come from the Christian tradition or these values come from um, any sort of particular point and, and they make their way into democracy and they become, you know, basically it, it's impossible for you to def- understand or defend democracy without them in some sense. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, it becomes like a sort of synergism of the historical with the normative. Um, and I'd say in the case of Judeo-Christian pluralists, they almost always then cry foul and say, well, but the term is not, it doesn't, it's, they take a legal realist approach in a sense, right? They say, well, the term doesn't, is not accurately descriptive, right, of the population of the United States in this moment or the world for that matter, right? And so to use it in that way, like they're, they're actually objecting to the sort of use of it in that like historical way, in that sort of framers intent way. Right. And they're saying, the danger of the term is the violence that it does at the demographic, at the level of defining democracy as something that certain members of our polity have more access to by virtue of their identity, right? Or the way that they understand democracy or by virtue of their belief in Christianity or Judaism, right? And and so there's actually a pretty strong split there between the historical and the demographic. And a lot of the debate actually revolves around that. And then the question of sort of how the normative vision gets laid on top in each of those cases, right? But the rejection of the term Judeo-Christian, I mean, the moment where it becomes no longer kind of mainstream term is very predictably, right? The period from the mid sixties to the mid seventies, when, you know, you've got immigration reform that is changing the demographics of this country, right? And the, some, some of the same kinds of ways that you can see, you know, the role of like demographic shifts between the 1880s and the 1920s, which bought huge, a huge realignment, you know, in relation to the Protestant uh, majority. I mean, it became a nation of Protestants, Catholics, and Jews at a demographic level, mm-hmm. right, by the interwar years, right, and in a way that was completely different than anything that had ever occurred before. And so you start to see those kinds of changes. You've also got, um, you know, just a, you know, real serious concern about the imperial character of the concept of Western civilization, right? There's a strong turn eastward culturally. <laughs> like there's, you know, a sense that that is, is really bankrupt for a subset of the American population. And that's how you see, I mean, that's how the, the, the notion of multiculturalism emerges in the 70s and 80s out of this, this moment of recognition um, where a, a, a sizable portion of the population is abandoning the concept of Western civilization and of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, and that's the moment where the culture wars really begin in earnest, right? And it's the the fact that someone like Ronald Reagan is able to come in and so deftly capture the term Judeo-Christian from what had been a more kind of, I mean, it had been an overarching term that had never, ever been really a consensus term, but it is one that, that was more widely held by a larger group of people across the political spectrum from the period of the 40s to the 70s. And that had a lot to do with the fact that it was demographically reasonably descriptive, right? It seemed true at some level. And I I think that's really an an interesting transition. You describe how in part because of these imperial entanglements, also because of changed immigration patterns, you actually get a kind of skepticism that this is a descriptive term for America and for the people around the world uh, with whom it's trying to ally. 
And I was also curious um, about whether there is a a potential division between the historical and the normative aspects. That's to say, can people accept that, or was it common for people to accept that, yes, some of these principles that are important to American democracy might come from the Jewish or Christian tradition or be consistent with it, but then say, but you don't need to be Jewish or Christian to subscribe to them. And the kind of example I was thinking was this really interesting um, moment when you mentioned this kind of list of principles of Judeo-Christianity that is published in Time magazine in the early 1950s and includes things like uh, respect for one's fellow, one's, one's fellow person uh, and a, a respect for property. And these seem like fairly almost not universal, but these seem like principles that one could subscribe to without being Christian or Jewish. And, and I wonder, was that something that people in the 1950s would have accepted? I mean, mainstream. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, absolutely. Like the best case of this is the, uh, is the concept of the atheist for Niebuhr. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, which was not like a complimentary designation. It was Morton White's critique of their position, right? But, the, but they've sort of become known as atheists for Niebuhr. And the point being just that, you know, these were people who were themselves like, non-believers or secularists or, you know, very weak believers who basically signed on for Niebuhr's view of human nature because they thought it was true, right? So that's, a, a you know, an example of how that can work. I mean, there's certainly lots of people. Um, and in fact, some of the, you know, conservative, um, I mean, some conservatives basically take this position. They just say, well, you know, we're not saying, in other words, we're not saying that there's got to be a vanguard. We're not saying that like a president of the United States has to be someone who is a an actual believer in one of these true traditions in order to be a reliable defender of democracy. But this is hotly debated in the period. And actually, there's a piece in the Journal of American History that I published in 2013 about Will Herberg and Reinhold Niebuhr around this very issue. Um, and it's sort of as the 50s dawn, like there are a bunch of conservatives. Herberg is starting to be one himself. Um, who are saying, hey, Niebuhr, you know, the logical implication of your thought is that, that we need a vanguard, right? I mean, that, that, that really, if democracy requires religion and religion in this context is, is Judeo-Christian, then, you know, we, then we ought to have particular faith in leaders and politicians that are from this faith. And Niebuhr was saying, that's not what I'm saying, right? <laughs> um, and so in a way, what happens is that he breaks rank. I mean, Herbert breaks rank with Niebuhr around this question and goes off and decides that his new mentor is going to be William F. Buckley. And he becomes the first religion editor for the National Review mm-hmm. um, because he believes that there is such a substantive connection between religion and democracy or Judeo-Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition and democracy um, that he is willing to really take that to its sort of logical implication. Or And, and, and Niebuhr is just is, is trying desperately to say, no, that's not what I meant to imply. Um, but it, you know, it's something that is sort of there implicit in the entire argument that religion, you know, that democracy requires religion. And it was something that H. Richard Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr's brother actually pointed out to him in the forties when he first started architecting that line of inquiry. And that's something that I've written about, um, in a piece for the Harvard Theological Review. So, I mean, it's a very fascinating story that way, and the Niebuhr brothers and their relationship sort of lie right at the center of it. Right. Um, in relation, though, to your question about, um, you know, the kind of um, increasing awareness that, like, decolonization 
and imperialism are central to the kind of downfall of this term, mm-hmm. right, in the 60s and 70s. Like one of them, there are two really surprising things um, that I found in writing this book. And I often end up talking about this with people when they ask me about the book. The first is that um, that Eisenhower was actually sort of aware that the term was powerful but dangerous, mm. right? He had a sense that it could do certain kinds of work, but that there were certain kinds of uses that it wasn't good for. And once you get to the mid-50s and the Ben Dung Conference and sort of decolonization becomes, you know, really a kind of going um, force in his thinking, I mean, he's thinking in terms of um, this question of the kind of global picture, like will democracy show itself to be superior to communism or will decolonizing nations look at the case of segregation in this country and say, well, democracy is not really turning out to be so great after all. Right. And so he's basically instructs his own brother, Milton Eisenhower, that the term Judeo Christian is not expansive enough to actually use in relation to the global scene. Right. And that's fascinating because what it suggests to me, and I try to explore this, you know, looking specifically at the case of Eisenhower is that his own experiences with the term were more extensive than we realize, partially um, because of his involvement in the military, which is one of the sort of very central places where it's being forged in the world war two era as your own Ronit Stahl and Deborah Dash Moore and my colleague, Kevin Schultz, um, all of them have written um, and made and hugely important contributions to our understanding um, of Judeo-Christian terminology in that context. Um, but I think that um, just to recognize that Eisenhower had a more subtle engagement with the term and that like many, many people in this book, like Eisenhower becomes sort of emblematic for me of a phenomenon that I see happening over and over and over again, which is that people grab onto Judeo-Christian terminology. They start using it as they use it. They see its power, but they also see its dangers. And so sometimes then after they've used it for a little while, they get more and more uneasy (laughs) about the ways in which it might not be working for them. And then they drop it like a hot rock. You talk about how Niebuhr in the, by the early 1950s was actually becoming somewhat skeptical of an over-reliance on political arguments for the importance of Christianity, specifically in the Judeo-Christian framework. And he started to suspect that that might make Christianity a kind of handmaiden to political aims and render it too utilitarian. Um, and you, you've written in this really interesting article on reinscribing religious authenticity that we shouldn't be looking at those developments as proof of a kind of less and less authentic Christianity, that there can be a Christianity that is supportive of or allied to um, political aims. And we ought not to necessarily think about this as less authentic and to kind of relitigate the same debates that people like Niebuhr were having. Um, and I'd be interested to hear about that, that argument. Well, I mean, that's a, it's an old sort of argument in a way. I mean, it's something that you see in the context of some of these um, debates around church-state relations. I mean, one of the things that Reinhold Niebuhr and his brother H. Richard talked a fair amount about was this particular kind of corner of the universe. And H. Richard Niebuhr wrote some brilliant stuff of his own on the question of how the church-state relation ought to be understood. And of course, they you know, did have a certain concern about the term separation, Right, which I mean may or may not be justified. H. Richard tried to like make his own addition to the conversation by talking about principles of limitation, so more of a spheres model, right, about the relationship between church and state. But um, as like you know, all kinds of folks have pointed out, Lawrence Moore um, and um, um, Isaac, um, what is his last name? 
Sorry. Anyway, there's a book called The Godless Constitution that is a wonderful kind of historical exploration of this question. And part of what you see in a lot of the, you know, the Baptists before the before they turned in the direction of the Southern Baptists and no longer cared about church-state separation, the idea was that um, that there was sort of the two-way potential for politics to sully religion and religion to sully politics, right? That they both had the ability to come, sort of um, defile the other, right? And so that um, that one of the things that was important, and this is something that was really crucially important for someone like H. Richard Niebuhr, I mean, he just was like, listen, like when you say that you believe in religion, right, you idolize it because what you believe in is God, right? <laughs> and when you say that democracy requires religion, right, you idolize religion. You turn it into an object. You turn it into a utilitarian tool. You turn it into something that it's really not because you basically usurp the mind of God, right? He's saying that a true believer lives in a world where that is idolatry and where they have to essentially like recognize that they're not going to understand how God is working in the world, but they have to be ever presently like sort of looking for evidence of God's work in the world. Right. And so there's something of a, I mean, it's, you know, very, um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, an excellent point though. I think just the idea that, um, that religion and politics, you know, are a danger to one another at some level. Right. And that's interesting that we can then trace to the, the present, as you do in the book, to the extent that in the by the 1990s and into the first decade of the 21st century, it seems that the Judeo-Christian discourse has receded from at least most mainstream political commentary. Presidents don't use it as often in their formal addresses. Um, and to the extent that people do use it, it seems much more partisan. Um, can you just talk a little bit about, because you mentioned this in the book, but I'd be curious to hear if you have other general thoughts, where you do find it appearing or reappearing in the present and what that means about the way its politics have changed. I mean, I think, you know, I wouldn't say that it's really disappeared. I think it's disappeared among a particular subset in certain places, right? So like if you are in Berkeley or Cambridge, you're not very likely to hear it. Um, but around the rest of the country, um, you are likely to hear it in lots of different kinds of contexts. And one of the things that I think is, I, mean, I think you're right when you say that it's become a much more partisan term. But the other thing to remember, of course, is that we're living in an information age that has basically like, you know, created a huge amount of sort of proliferation of all kinds of, you know, print material, commentary. I mean, there's like more kind of sources out there of all kinds. And so if you do like an engram for the term Judeo-Christian, you're going to see a burst, mm. you know, a continued kind of rise that is representative of the way that like this information age has just like, you know, continued to, you know, make the um, historiography in every field more voluminous by leaps and bounds than it was for a previous generation of scholars. Right. Um, and so, you know, those kinds of measures can be a little bit um, misleading. I mean, I also think that um, part of the thing about the power of Judeo-Christian terminology, I mean, it, one of the other big surprises that I found in the process of writing this book, uh, and I'd be curious to know whether people like Rene and Kevin Schultz and Deborah Dash Moore find this surprising too, but I think it's, you know, Mark Silk also, of course, who's written, who basically started this entire like field with his incredible book, um, Spiritual Politics, which is also the name of his blog for the RNS or his um 
column actually for the RNS. Um, but anyway, um, those folks all, I'd be curious to ask them, you know, is it surprising to you? Like, I think we tend to confuse primacy with kind of ownership, right? So the sort of fallacy of origins, right? The fallacy of origins creeps into the mind of every historian. And part of what that means is that because Eisenhower used it first, we think Eisenhower used it with the most kind of gusto. Right. Right. And so it then becomes surprising that when you look at all presidential rhetoric, Reinhold, I mean, Reinhold Niebuhr, um, Ronald Reagan is by far and away the most active user of Judeo-Christian terminology among all the presidents. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about the center of gravity of Judeo-Christian terminology in presidential speech, it gives you a really, really strong sense of like the kind of cultural reach mm -hmm. of that term on the right. And the fact that even though it's a term of great power that can also be a term that can hurt you. You know, it's frequently the term that people use when they're trying to cinch the deal, mm -hmm. right? And if they don't use it, they always wonder if maybe they had used it, if that might somehow shift things, right? <laughs> right? And so you saw that a little bit with like Trump and Clinton. It was like they had this like kind of mutual agreement that we just weren't going to go there with the religion thing. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it strikes me, I mean, just in thinking about the kind of the the conclusion of your book and thinking about this term in the present, um, it seems like the the opportunity in which we could imagine it it does not, if not return, take on new meanings and new significance is in this kind of, I don't know if you could call it a movement, but this kind of circle around, I guess, what is being called national conservatism. The sense mm -hmm. that, um, you know, conservatism in the United States uh, and conservatism in other parts all over the world, in places like Hungary, in places like Poland, um, and other places with these more um, with more right wing governments, uh, that they all share a kind of they share something, and that thing that they share is nationalism. But it's a nationalism rooted in something beyond. And so, it, to me, it's just it strikes me as interesting that that seems like the kind of rhetoric that would be very accommodating to Judeo-Christian. I'm not as familiar with their writings, but I'm sure this people like Steve Bannon and these kinds of thinkers, yeah. you know. Well, yeah, I mean, for sources on this, I think um, Udi Greenberg did a wonderful review of this book for the um, New Republic, and Mark Silk has written some really great pieces on Bannon and the sort of overarching kind of go goal here. I mean, one thing that I guess I would contribute to that is I would say that Bannon is someone who is like, basically a culture warrior who wants to take the culture wars global. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he would like to take the kind of logic of the culture wars global in part because he has studied every move that Reinhold, that uh, Ronald and Reagan ever made. Um, and um, in terms of his like rhetoric, he's a, you know, somebody who's really paid close attention to Reagan. In fact, he became a conservative, you know, in part swayed by Reagan because he'd grown up in a um, Catholic household that was, you know, more in the democratic fold, I think. Um, so, you know, interestingly, Bannon uh, is, I mean, Bannon is funny, right? He's a good example of who um, understands the kind of eclecticism of modern media. It's like important to remember that his like experience of filmmaking and stuff like that. And he knows that if he just grabs handfuls of jelly and like throws it at the wall, then he's going to get some information by seeing what sticks. Right. Um, and as a result, the, the media often is like sort of tempted to portray him as a buffoon. Mm -hmm. Right. And just be like, oh, look, you know, Steve Bannon came up with this film he thought was going to change everything. And there were five people in the audience. But like Bannon is quite happy to suffer that. Right. Because, you know, he's the guy that like suffers through stuff like that and then somehow gets it right sometimes. And when he gets it right, he wins big. Mm -hmm. 
right? <laughs> so, you know, so I think, I mean, I personally am of the sort of feeling that like, you know, somebody should have a show called Where in the World is Steve Bannon? <laughs> like, you know, where they're just like tracking him and like kind of keeping an eye on what he's up to because you know, just because he doesn't succeed all the time doesn't mean he's not dangerous. Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I mean, I think about that too because he, he certainly appears even in like European elections. It does make me think a lot about the book insofar as, you know, it's, it's almost like this, uh, another moment of these kind of, transatlantic connections in which people are trying to think, well, how does America relate to the rest of the world? And it was obvious, sir, mm -hmm. it was, it became an opportunity during the Cold War to try to think about America's connection with Europe. And so it seems like in a similar way, we see a return with this through someone like Bannon of a kind of thinking about how you can connect right-wing movements in America with right-wing movements in Europe. Yeah, definitely. And it's also about sort of storytelling at the national level, right? It's like Bannon tells a particular kind of story about what's happening in the U.S. and how it's happening globally. And he tries to basically convince other nations to accept his like definition of who they are and where they are, right? And then to understand like the global situation through his yeah. storyline, right? And so like part of what I think is at stake as we move forward politically is the recognition that whatever kind of faux you know, evidence there is, you know, on the sort of surface of things that Trump and Bannon aren't on the same page, like Trump continues to have like essentially a kind of approach that it's got Bannon's footprints, I mean, fingerprints all over it, right? He's the architect of it and it remains relatively unchanged. And so understanding how that storyline works and how to come up with a, not just like try to dismantle it, but how to come up with an alternative to it that is right. convincing. <laughs> like, I think that this explains partially why um, I mean, it's precisely because there's this kind of big level narrative stuff that um, so many in the sort of democratic establishment are scratching their heads and saying, why didn't we mm -hmm. do better in Iowa? All right. It's because there's big, big, I mean, we've got a big level narrative claim that is being countered effectively presently by um, folks with a sort of more Christian socialist mm -hmm. grand narrative, right, about what is happening in this world and what is happening in this country and how it has, you know, what it has to do with the sort of future directions of politics or what, they, what the future directions of politics have to be. Right. And I think that that's a fantastic place to end. And it shows just how much uh, your book is perhaps a unique one that can trace the, a long history of these kinds of narratives to help us understand their power in the present and what possibly an alternative might look like. Um, and I think, Thank you. Uh, you know, so I'd be interested to see how that unfolds. And I'm also curious if you could tell us what projects you're working on now or, or what you've been thinking about since you finished the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me just say, in case I don't get a chance at the tail end, just thank you so much for your interest in this book. It's um, one that I've thought a lot about, and it's a, such a pleasure to share it at this moment in time. I wish that it weren't so relevant in some way. Um, you know, it's it's really kind of shocking to me. I mean, at, at certain certain point, you get to the point where your own sort of the present starts to feel surreal, and that's a sign that you're getting older. I remember when my grandmother reached that point when she was in her 80s, and it never occurred to me that I would get there in my 40s, yeah. but here we are. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, and so, yeah, thank you for the time you've taken to do this. Uh, as for what I'm doing presently, I'm actually um, working, I'm teaching a course right now at um, Harvard Divinity School um, on called Witch Hunts, which um, looks at uh, the Salem Witch Trials, um, the Underground Railroad, and um, the McCarthy era um, to think about the sort of longer um, sort of history of witch hunt rhetoric and um, themes in American history and the sort of relevance of that for thinking about um, contemporary ethics. Uh, part of what the course does is just 
you know, encourages students to juxtapose present discourse, you know, that uses witch hunts, whether it's Trump decrying um, the impeachment trials as a witch hunt and a hoax, you know, to, um, to his um, policies about um, immigration and building a wall and the extent to which he is um, authorizing a witch hunt on the right in this country that's really directed at LGBTQ people um, and immigrants and um, the Muslim population. Um, it, that, I think, is uh, really at the heart of the current um, political um, situation that we're facing. And so it's exciting to see students who are eager to explore that a little bit. I mean, to look back and say, okay, how might my own thinking about this present moment change when I sort of use the encounter with the past as a lens, right? That's the purpose of the course. And so we talk pretty much every session about um, uses the contemporary uses of the, the concept of a witch hunt on both the right and the left in the present time, right? But then we juxtapose each session um, with the readings that we're doing um, about these other historical periods and the kinds of dynamics that are at work in them. Well, that sounds like a fantastic course and sounds like it can only become possibly more and more relevant. So uh, what, finally, uh, Professor Helen Gaston, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate your time.